She does have a beautiful voice, doesn't she? Very blessed addition to our ministry as a family. It's good to be in Hibbing. Uh, we were supposed to have visited, I think, a year ago. Uh, not quite. Maybe last fall. It seems like a year ago. And we had a little COVID scare through the house, so we had to call Sunday morning. Sorry, we, we can't. And then this weekend, uh, Timothy had a little, uh, we thought, pneumonia. And then Saturday morning, I woke up, I said, Marissa, I don't feel very good myself. And then I said, we can't not go. Well, this will be twice we will have canceled. we got to make sure we go to Hibbing. We, they're going to get a complex if we keep doing this. So I know, I'm silly too. Uh, well, there was a uh, preacher that died and went to heaven, thankfully. And before he got there, there was a, uh, another gentleman that showed up. And he pulled up on a motorcycle, leathers, and tattooed up. And he got to the pearly gates and Peter said, Well, I need your name. I need to know what you did. And I need to look up if you belong here. And so he said the name. He said, I was a pilot in life. And Peter looked it up and found the man and said, sure enough, you belong. And he gave him a, a beautiful silk robe and a golden staff. And there was a big accolade to welcome him into heaven. And the preacher got up there and, of course, very humble, but thought he would surely get as much accolade as this pilot got. And St. Peter said, okay, you're good to go. And he gave him a simple cotton robe and a wooden staff and ushered him in quietly. And the preacher said, now, wait a minute. I don't mean to be arrogant or uh, assume anything, but I was a preacher my whole life. I gave my life to the spreading of the word. Uh, certainly, I should get a little bit of a hoo-ha as I get in here. And uh, St. Peter said, well, we measure things by, uh, by participation up here. And when he flew, people prayed. And when you preached, people slept. <laughs> So hopefully you won't sleep too much during the sermon this morning. <laughs> well, as uh, Josiah, the junior soldier, uh, read this morning, we're going to be reading out of the book of Acts. We're going to be working from the book of Acts. Primarily chapter 1 and the first part of 2. We don't want to get to Pentecost yet, but uh, for those of you who maybe are unfamiliar with the Christian calendar, we go through these seasons and most of us are familiar with the big uh, Sundays in the Christian calendar, Christmas and uh, Easter. And then after Easter, we get into, uh, we come towards the day of Pentecost. Uh, incidentally, I was born on the day of Pentecost uh, 37 years ago. And I've been in church every time the door was open until last year. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I had to have church from home. So... Uh, we're coming, coming into the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples. They spoke in tongues. Uh, the Bible says 3,000 people were saved that day. Wouldn't that be amazing to go to a revival and 3,000 people are saved? Uh, it would be wonderful. But there's a lot of time between the, the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. And, you know, in our lives, we often look for the grand moments, don't we? We like the grand moments. The 90th birthday, that is amazing. And you don't look a day over 50. You look amazing. 
the 90th birthday, uh, the amazing family vacations, right? We remember those, the Grand Canyon or, or uh, going to the ocean. We went on a cruise last year before COVID in January, and it was beautiful to go to the islands and to have the sun. And then we came back to Minnesota in January, and it was depressing. We look for these amazing moments, and we stand in awe as we kind of gaze over the ocean or we gaze over the Great Lakes. We've been up to Duluth and to Lake Superior, and it, it looks like the ocean. It's amazing. And uh, these grand places kind of go in, hand in hand with grand moments, right? You think about your favorite Disney movie or your favorite sitcom, and the, you know, the man always proposes to the woman in this amazing backdrop, and it's always romantic, and it always works out. It never works out that way in real life, I've found. Uh, but we like these grand moments, and we seek them out. We sometimes even manufacture these times of grandeur. And that's not wrong. It's okay that we expect something grand, that we like the grand things. But sometimes that's in detriment to the ordinary moments of life. And I think it's important to focus on ordinary moments of life because they can be just as powerful. There's an old uh, saying, an old phrase, everything I ever needed to learn, I learned at my grandfather's feet. And that speaks to those ordinary moments, that ordinary time where you're just living life with somebody. Uh, I think of the moments when I was young and I was able to just drink coffee with my grandparents or my parents. Some of my favorite times are going back home to my parents and visiting and we eat dinner and then we just sit at the table and we talk. And those are amazing moments. There's nothing grand about them. They're just ordinary moments. And uh, we could call those the valleys, right? The mountaintops are those grand moments, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Resurrection, Pentecost. But we always have to go through these valleys to get to the mountains, right? Uh, I don't mind the valleys so much as I mind walking up the mountains, right? When we were in Israel, we went to uh, Megiddo. And it was very high up there. And you have two options. You can either walk up Megiddo or you can take this cable car. And I thought, I don't really want to walk. I'm fat. I know they're not going to have a cheeseburger at the top, so I'm going to take this cable car. Well, they put you on there like it's a cattle car full of people. It's clear on the bottom. You can see the thousand feet to your death all the way down. And so I'm thinking, there's no way I'm taking this thing back. So we walked down Megiddo. Even walking down, though, I got to the bottom and my legs were like jello. They were so shaky because you're holding yourself on this rock all the way down. So I, I don't mind the valleys so much as I mind walking up the mountain. Uh, but the valleys are good. And the valleys are where we kind of establish ourselves in Christ. Those ordinary moments, those times where we're just sitting and being with Christ. And this is actually what happens with the disciples between the resurrection, really between the ascension and Pentecost. And we see here mentioned twice, very important. In verse 14 of chapter 1, they were all with one mind 
were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And then it's almost repeated in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So there's two important things here that the disciples have done to prepare for Pentecost. Now we often hear, why doesn't God move today like he used to move? Why don't we see the miracles today like we used to see in the Bible? Well, I would venture to say we don't see the men and women of God today like we saw in the Bible. And that is as convicting to me as it is to anyone else. Do we see people who are devoting themselves for 40 days to prayer and to each other? If we ask people to do that today, we would not get any response. Sometimes the best thing we can do today is to say, here's a five-minute devotional you can listen to on your way to work. That's the best kind of uh, commitment we can get sometimes today. And that's really sad. Because we don't like the ordinary times, we like the mountain peaks. And for us today, our mountaintops have become Sunday morning. We're going to go to church on Sunday. That makes us a Christian. It doesn't. Uh, You can't devote yourself to Christ with only one hour a week. We give ourselves to many other things for many other hours of the week. The disciples were preparing themselves. They didn't know that Pentecost was going to come. They didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus said, I will send my comforter. That's all. That's the only instruction they had. That's all they knew. Now, this morning, we had a really good example of this. We're getting out of the van and Marissa, who is the mother. And of course, moms know everything. Sometimes it takes us till we're about 18, 19 to realize that, but moms know everything. Marissa says to Josiah, Josiah, you should bring your backpack in. And he said, I don't need my backpack. I have my book and my Bible. That's all I need. We get in here and Josiah says, Daddy, can you take me back out so I can get my backpack? I said, I think mommy told you to do that, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she did. I said, well, you need to remember to just listen to mommy. And he said, well, what if mommy told me to jump off a building? Should I listen to her? I said, yeah, you should. You should trust her that she knows what she's talking about. And we have the same thing with Jesus. He didn't give the disciples much information at all, except to say, I will send my comforter. And the only thing they knew to do out of the three years of living and breathing and eating with Jesus was we should all be together and we should all be devoted to prayer. That's what they learned from Jesus. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to delve into the life of Christ, thinking we're going to find some new miracle or some new code or some new secret. All there is is devote yourselves to each other as the church and devote yourselves to prayer. That's what Jesus taught. So, but what does that mean? Now, this uses an interesting phrase. They were all with one mind. What does one mind mean? We really can't overstate the importance of one mind. Being of one body, one spirit, one mind. Paul talks about this later in in his letters. And I will tell you, I'm as patriotic as the next person, but there is no room in Christianity for the typical American sentiment of independence and individuality. We love that as Americans. We love to be our own people. I am an individual. I'm unique. God may have made you unique, but he made you to be a part of the body of Christ. 
and there's no room for distancing and distinctness in the body of Christ. And this concept of oneness is not new to the disciples. It shouldn't be new to us. God talks about this in Genesis. He creates Adam and Eve, and he says, The man shall leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Just one. Now that's not easy. If you've been married, you know it's not easy to become one. Because you have two different people coming from two different families, believing two different things. Now you magnify that out to a church, and you have, what, 10, 15 people in this room who all have different backgrounds, different upbringing, different understandings of life, and we all have to be one mind. And you know what? You think, preacher, that would be a miracle. Well, you're right. It is a miracle that is only brought on by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle. But God calls us to that. God moves on to use the very same thing. Now, in Hebrew, there is a word for an absolute one, like we would say a number one, and it's only one thing. But there's also a word for a compound one. And God uses that word, and the word is echad, for man and woman. It's two people, but they're becoming one. And he uses the same word for the tabernacle. There's a lot of different pieces in the tabernacle, but it is one unit. And interestingly, he uses the same word for himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, The Lord your God, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And of course, looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty. We, from our Trinitarian theology, can say, well, he's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here you have an incredible picture of love and oneness in the Trinity. Three beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet we believe they are co-equal in power and glory. They are one essence. They are undivided. They are not distinct. We cannot distinguish them from each other. There is a oneness to them. And God has called us to be the same thing. One cohesive unit in the church. And you know, I have to tell you, it breaks my heart that the church is not cohesive. We're not one. There are so many denominations, so many different people. So many times we say, I don't agree with them, so I'm going to go start my own thing, or I'm going to go to a different church. I grew up in Kansas City, metropolitan area, and to have people who were church hoppers was not unique. People would go from one church to another. I'm not getting fed here. Or they, I don't like the pastor here. I don't like that. And go from one to the other. And you know, the same thing happens in the Twin Cities amongst salvationists. Well, I don't like this core officer. I'll go here until they move, and then I'll move back, and then I'll go there. And It's wrong. I dare say sinful. You know, Paul in his letters has a couple of interesting lists of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Amongst them are murderers and idolaters and fornicators and also gossips and people who cause strife. So as we think about gossiping, you know the best place for gossip in the church is the prayer meeting. Well, I have a prayer request about Sister Thelma and... I don't want to give any details, but here's what's going on. Yeah, it's terrible. And Paul says, you know what? 
when you're gossiping, or when you're causing strife and division, you are the same as murderers and fornicators and adulterers, and you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. These are the white lies that we're okay with sometimes in the church, but they shouldn't be okay because we need to be one. One unit. Caring for each other, helping each other. One of the most important ministries of the early church was serving the widows and the orphans. So important was it, in fact, that when they came to Peter and said, these widows and orphans are not being served the same, equitably, equally, Peter didn't say, well, you know, we've got this young man who thinks he's called to ministry and we should see if he should do it. He's kind of an intern now and that's busy work. Let's go have him do it. No, they said, let's pray and find someone full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit to do this important task. And I wonder in the church, do we look at all of our tasks with that kind of importance as we're serving the widows and the orphans, as we're serving those in need? Do we say, let's pray and find someone full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit to take care of this task? Or do we find a warm body and put them there? And that, of course, leads us to the next part of what they devoted themselves to, not only devoted to each other, but devoted to prayer. We should be praying at all times. To think that we can get on in life, particularly the Christian life, and particularly as the church, without prayer, is absolute, frankly, arrogance and ignorance. We can't get on without prayer. Prayer connects us to the Father. Prayer connects us to the Holy Spirit. And because of that, prayer connects us to each other. This is how we accomplish being one body. Jesus prayed all the time. He would often take time away to pray. And to think that we can somehow accomplish life better than Jesus is pretty ridiculous. Don't you agree? If Jesus needed to pray, we need to pray. And the disciples set the standard right from the beginning. Their Savior was gone. Their rabbi was gone. They didn't know what to do. They were confused. All they knew was, wait, and I will send my comforter. And while they were waiting, they decided they needed to pray. We should be doing the same thing. Praying. Waiting and praying. There's a quote that I really like from Samuel Chadwick, which says, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies. He fears nothing from prayerless work. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And of course, I think we all know in our minds an old saint who was a prayer warrior. We don't see, unfortunately, too many prayer warriors anymore, but I recall from my youth, prayer warriors. And you knew that there was no mountain in this world that could stand in front of a prayer warrior. That they would all fall. Every mountain would fall into the ocean and every valley would be brought up. Every tough guy who walked through the core building would fall on his knees because of a prayer warrior. 
And somehow in the church, even in this great army of salvation, we have gotten to the point where we have believed that we can move on in our own uh, intelligence without prayer. And then we sit back and we have committees and meetings and uh, think tanks and think, what can we do to grow our core? What can we do to have more officers? What can we do to have church growth? And the Bible tells us, devote yourselves to prayer. Why do you think Satan laughs at our toil and mocks us? Why do you think he laughs at prayerless work? Because he knows it's not going to amount to anything. He can defeat us at every turn without Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can defeat Satan. So as we move forward towards Pentecost, the time between the great resurrection of our Savior and the time of the falling of the Holy Spirit on the church. We're looking forward to the Holy Spirit, great anticipation. We know that we're not, that, that we should be spending this time working on ourselves as the body of Christ. This is a great time to be spending time developing ourselves in prayer and in Christian unity and cohesion. It's a great gift, this time between these two great events, this valley as we go towards Pentecost. It's a gift knowing that we're not focusing on the great things ahead or the great mountain peaks ahead. We're focusing on the here and now, on being together as the body of Christ, focusing on prayer, devoting ourselves to prayer. Because it's only in being together as one mind and devoting ourselves to prayer that we can truly see the work of God in the midst of his people. If you want revival, be of one mind and one spirit and devote yourselves to prayer. It's that simple, really. I recall in our first appointment, I was uh, preaching and I went... Uh, for a long time, just with what I felt were very dry sermons. Uh, just, just felt like I was making no headway in these stubborn and obstinate people. No one came to the altar. No one commented after the sermon. Uh, it just seemed like nothing was happening. But I just decided I'm going to keep being faithful and keep preaching the Word of God and keep preaching what the Lord leads me to preach. And about a year in, we had great revival. People's lives were turned around. We had people coming into the core that we had never met before. In fact, <clears throat> this year, and this is a, a bragging on my wife, she oversaw our Pathway of Hope program in that first appointment. And this year, there will be a cadet who is commissioned who was our Pathway of Hope client in our first appointment came in and she came to church and she said to my wife after the service, Captain Marissa, Lieutenant Marissa at that time, I don't know what happened, but I had this sort of strange feeling in my body as we were worshiping. And Marissa said, well, I think that was the Holy Spirit. Would you like to go to the altar? Oh, yeah, I would. And now she's at the College for Officer Training, about to be an officer because of faithful ministry to prayer and being together. And you know, that that has been our philosophy of ministry throughout. The body of Christ and prayer and devotion to the Word. 
That's how we get on as the church. So if we want revival, that's what we look for. And being together, devoting ourselves to prayer. Praying that God will show himself and be in our midst. I want to focus on that word for just a second, actually. It's a, not in the sermon notes. It's a free, free, free part this morning. The Bible talks about God being in the midst of his people. Have you ever sat on that for a moment and to think about God being in the midst? Unlike any other religion, we don't serve a God who is far off. We don't serve a God who's an idol, who is sort of separate. We serve a God who is in the midst of his people. When I was a kid, in order to get me to behave... People would sometimes say, if Jesus would hear, were you act like that? If Jesus was sitting right next to you, would you say that? And I came to the point, because I was a smart kid, you know. Well, I think Jesus is here. <laughs> I think Jesus is supposed to be right here next to me. So maybe I shouldn't act like that. He's in the midst of us. But God cannot be in the midst of sin. We see this first when the people of Israel defeat Jericho. And what did they do? They marched around it and blew some horns. It was the first expression of the Salvation Army right there. They marched around the city and they blew some horns and the city came tumbling down. And then from that amazing victory, they go to Ai and they're totally defeated. And the Bible says, in fact, they ran in fear because God wasn't in their midst because there was sin. God wants to be in the midst of us. And in order to be in the midst of us, we need to be devoted to each other and devoted to prayer so that God and us can sharpen each other to be more like him. There is importance in Christian fellowship. Uh, many people will say, well, can't I get to heaven or be a Christian without going to church? And my answer always is, no, you can't. Because the church, the body of Christ, Fellowship with believers is an integral part of holiness. I can be real holy when I'm at home all by myself, and I don't have to deal, frankly, with stupid people, right? But when I get on the highway in the Twin Cities and people are cutting me off and flipping me off and stopping in front of me, I have to be a different kind of holy at that point, right? I need the Holy Spirit to teach me to be holy. And when I'm interfacing with other officers or with other Christians... I have to be holy. I'm learning to be holy. When I'm at home by myself and I have nothing challenging me, that's not holiness. That's just seclusion. We need the body of Christ to be holy. And we need prayer. Because through that, the Father and the Holy Spirit teach us what it means to be like Jesus. Catherine Mercer is going to come and She's going to play for us and sing this song, Holy Spirit. And I would ask that you begin now in prayer. Uh, you can come to the altar. You can sit where you are. You can stand whatever posture of prayer you want to take on. But I would ask you to devote yourselves to prayer even this morning. It's good to know my children finally listen to me. I, I would ask you to pray about these couple of topics. One. Lord, how can I be a better part of the one body of Christ? 
How can I devote myself more to prayer? And also, Lord, is there any way that I detract from the unity of the body of Christ? Can I be a be- How can I be a better part of the body? How can I devote myself to prayer more? And is there any way that I detract from the unity of the body of Christ?